Good morning, everyone. If you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to Malachi, Malachi chapter 4, Malachi chapter 4, and I'm going to be reading the entire chapter, uh, verses 1 through 6. Malachi chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. Hear the word of God. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven. And all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly will be stubble. And the day which is coming shall burn them up. Says the Lord of hosts. That will leave them, neither root nor branch. But to you... Who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness, shall arise with healing in his wings, and you shall go out and grow fat like stall fed calves. You shall trample the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day that I do this, says the Lord of hosts, remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb. For all Israel, with the statutes and judgments, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. Amen. And uh, as part of preparing ourselves uh, to worship God, uh, Uh, we look at uh, a text like this one uh, to do this. And uh, this morning, as we've been looking at this section of Malachi, what we're looking at, of course, is the judgment that is coming. This this coming judgment that Malachi is speaking of. And there are two questions, really, that we need to ask. So this call to worship is not so much uh, a devotional, as it were, a devotional. Uh, kind of thing, but more of a, I don't want to call it theoretical, but I'll ask two questions. When and how? When is this day that Malachi is talking about? Is it still future to us? Is it in our past? Of course, it's going to be future to his audience, to the people he's writing to. And then how does it come about? How do these things that Malachi promises are going to happen? First, the destruction of the wicked, verse 1. And second, the justification of the righteous. How do these things occur? So, I want you to note this with me. Look at Luke chapter 1. So, I'll, I'll give you my answer. And then we'll look at these texts together. The first is this. I believe he's talking about the first advent. He's not talking about the second advent of Christ. So he's talking about his first advent. And the way that Jesus accomplishes this, of course, is through his life, death, burial, and resurrection. So when? His first coming. Not his second coming. And how does he do this? By the work he accomplishes while he's here on earth. And uh, this is why. Look at Luke 
chapter 1. And I'll begin reading at verse 76. Verse 76 here is Zechariah's prophecy. After John the Baptist is born, Zechariah's tongue is loosed. Remember, he was mute during the period of uh, his son's uh, conception and, and birth because he didn't believe the angel. So he was mute. And now that he is able to speak, he gives us this wonderful prophecy. And beginning at verse 76, he says this, And you, child, speaking to his little baby, maybe he's holding him up, right? And he says, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the highest. Remember, there's a prophet coming that's to prepare, the, the messenger in Malachi chapter 3 that's coming to prepare the way for Jesus. You will be called the prophet of the highest, for you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his way. That's, that's the exact wording from Malachi chapter 3. For what purpose? To give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins. Through So, so that is what John the Baptist was doing when he was preaching repentance. He was giving the people a knowledge of salvation that their sins might be forgiven, that they might receive remission of sins. That is what his ministry was all about. And pointing to Jesus was really the apex, the, the top of this kind of heralding. Through the tender mercy of our God. That's the instrument, right? So, so John the Baptist is the spokesman. And the reason why people are receiving this grace the ability to have their sins forgiven is because of the mercy of God with which the day spring from on high has visited us. Now, keep your finger here. I'm going to look at a few more verses, but turn back to Malachi. And uh, Malachi chapter 4 and verse 2. Remember, he's called the day spring. That, of course, is a reference to the Messiah. It's a reference to Jesus. So the mercy of God is ultimately displayed in this one. And look at how Malachi refers to him in chapter 4, verse 2. But to you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall arise. You see the, the relationship between the language that's used to describe Jesus, the day spring? What, what, what does that refer to? Like it's, it's the first light that breaks through. Or he is the son, S-U-N, the son of righteousness. He is the one who uh, reveals who God is. He sheds abroad the light of his person and the perfection of his words, and people come to know who God is. That's what Jesus does. And John the Baptist was heralding him in. Uh, back to, to Luke here. To give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins, through the tender mercy of our God, with which the day spring from on high has visited us. For what purpose? To give light to those who are in darkness. And the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Um, that, that is, 
really poetic, beautiful language, but to describe men and women who live in this world who do not know God and who are living in a world, men, and men and women who know God, but who are living in a world that is filled with darkness. And what Jesus comes to do is he comes to shed, to give them light. And this is pretty providential, but today we'll be reading, or I'll be preaching from John 9, and there, that is exactly what Jesus does. So this is the first coming. This is, this is the first coming of Christ. Note the connection with the imagery. Now, so first, we see that the language that is used in Malachi chapter 4 is picked up by Zacharias and he applies it to Jesus. Next, a look at the imagery here. In verse 1 of Malachi 4, it says this, And the day which is coming shall burn them up. And then it says that the Son of Righteousness shall arise with healing in His wings. So you you have this imagery of heat and of light. Uh, I don't know who said this, but a lot of people repeat it. The same sun that hardens clay melts wax. Right? This is talking about the same event, the coming of the Messiah. And because of the brightness of His glory, those who are His, their eyes are open to see Him. And those who are not His, what happens? They are hardened against Him. And they suffer the consequences. He judges them. So, the point of the metaphor now, that He has healing in His wings, is this. Oh, well, you know, this sun is kind of compared, the, the imagery is a bit strange here, right? Because the sun is compared to a bird. Listen to the language. The sun of righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings. So he's mixing things here. What's the purpose of doing something like that? Um, no. Okay, so you, you see a bird in the air flying around. And let's say you see a shadow on the ground. And what, what is most prominent well, it's, it's wings. It's really, you don't notice all of the details about the bird, but you see it's wings. And the sun, the way that it heats us, the, the way that it communicates of his essence to us is by means of its rays. Or at least that's the way that we think about it. And that's the way that they would think about it. So God is communicating, and this is why I think he uses this illustration, God is communicating essentially who he is through the rays of light that are the person of Christ. Healing refers to the reversal of the effects of the curse to those who are sitting in darkness and in the shadow of of death. So, you know, that's a lot of information. This is a whole sermon. This, this should be a whole sermon. It's not going to be. But what is the point of all of this? Uh, Malachi is comforting the people and he's saying to them, remember their circumstances. They had come out of captivity. They're back in the land and there seems to be now this turning away from the true and living God. And 
now what Malachi is doing is he is promising judgment is coming for the wicked. And justification, or to use the biblical language, condemnation is coming for unbelievers. And justification is coming for the righteous. And it's coming in the person of God's Son. And what he's talking about specifically, of course, is the ministry of Jesus among the Jewish people and their rejection of him. That's what he's talking about. That's what happened during his first advent. On the whole, the Jewish people rejected him. The Jewish leaders rejected him. And what happened? They were judged. A.D. 70, their entire system of religion was basically obliterated. Their form of worship, they could no longer worship the way that they used to. It was completely gone. Temples gone, sacrifices gone, no high priests, no genealogies. I mean, they were decimated because of their unbelief. Now, as we read this, we are in a similar situation as those Jews that Jesus was talking about, uh, excuse me, that Malachi was talking to. Because we sit in anticipation for Christ's second coming. So we read these words in Revelation 22, beginning at verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. And the spirit and the bride say, come. Let him who hears say, come. And let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. And that is the offer that Jesus still gives to men. He continues to be the brightness and the morning star, the glory of God, the means by which God reveals himself to men. And he continues to offer that invitation to come to me. Come to the Lord Jesus Christ. So brothers and sisters, as we prepare our hearts for worship, let's remember that the center, the focus of our hope for the future is the person of Christ. And that by means of his coming, we will be saved from the wrath to come. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for your Son. We thank you for the revelation that he gives us of yourself. And Lord, as we even think about that or the uh, generation of men that he revealed himself to, Lord, in his first coming, let, let us not look down on them too much, Lord. Because apart from your grace, we would continue to be stubborn, hard-hearted, and rebellious against you. We thank you for the mercy that you've displayed to us in the person of your Son. And we ask now, Lord, that you would work in us this morning by your Spirit to help us glorify you as we sing your praises, as we hear your word preached, as we take the Lord's Supper. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now please stand and sing.
There we go. Please remain standing as you're able uh, for our Old Testament scripture reading. For the Old Testament scripture reading, we're in Genesis 45, and we'll be reading the entire chapter. Genesis 45. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, Make everyone go out for me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud, so that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? Brothers, but his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh, and lord of all his house, and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father, and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me. You and your children, and your children's children, and your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt, and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck, and he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, Do this. Load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan. And take your father and your households and come to me, and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt, and you shall eat of the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, Do this. Take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives, and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. The sons of Israel did so, and Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh, and gave them provisions for the journey. To each and all of them he gave a change of clothes, but to Benjamin he gave three hundred shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. To his father he sent as follows, ten donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt, and ten female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and provision for his father on the journey. Then he sent his, his brothers away, and they departed. And as they departed, he said to them, Do not quarrel on the way. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive, and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, 
And when he was, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, "It is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die." May God add His blessing to the reading of the Word. Please remain standing as you're able and sing. Please remain standing as you're able for our New Testament scripture reading. For our New Testament scripture reading, we're in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 4, and we'll be reading verses 21 through 41. 21 through the end of the chapter. 
And he said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket, or under a bed, and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, Pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And he said, The kingdom of God is as a man, as if, I'm sorry, and as he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. And he said, With what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown in the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet, when it is grown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples he explained everything. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, he took him, they took him with them in a boat, just as he was. And the other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was ready was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on a cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased. And there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And God added his blessing to the reading of the word. Again, please remain standing as you're able as we sing.
to Matthew chapter 26. And I'll be reading verses 26 and following. We're continuing to give attention to the new covenant. And as we consider the new covenant itself, this gracious uh, instrument used by God to bless us with every blessing that is in the heavenly places. We're looking back at our Bibles. We're looking at the covenant that God made with Adam. We're going to look at the covenant he made with Abraham and the covenant that he made with David and Moses by way of contrasting and and doing exactly what the author to the book of Hebrews does, uh, showing us how much greater Jesus is and the work that he accomplishes for us. And this is a marvelous time to do it while we take the Lord's Supper and, and we consider our Savior's death. So in Matthew chapter 26, this of course was important to Jesus and it was important to Him during the Lord's Supper because of what the Supper signifies or particularly His shed blood. So Matthew chapter 26 beginning at verse 26. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Amen. Amen. Now if I could find my notes. Okay. Now as we, uh, turn with me to uh, Genesis. We're, we're still there. We're still thinking about uh, Adam. And we saw that when God gave Adam the command not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that there was a sanction, a punishment, and then there was also a blessing, a reward that he would receive, and the reward was signified by the tree of life. There was nothing intrinsic in the tree of of the knowledge of good and evil. I said that, but you know, there was nothing intrinsic, and there is nothing intrinsic in the tree of life. It's not like it has special minerals. (laughs) And you know, of course, this is the mistake that some of our Lutheran friends make in part, but the Catholic Church makes completely because they view the elements or, the, or sacraments, they view them as administering in and of themselves uh, grace. So, you know, they'll do special things like have burial for the bread and pour the wine in a specific place because it actually becomes, in their thinking, the, the blood of Christ. And, uh, you know, when you begin to think sharply about these things, you realize that it helps clear up a lot of stuff in the Bible, like this issue of the trees. You know, there's nothing intrinsic in them. But these are the means that God has prescribed, or older authors would say, these are the tokens that God gives us of the blessings we have received, or we will receive one day. But in the book of Genesis, chapter 3, I want you to look at verse 16 in particular because what I want you to see now is the nature of the sin of Adam and Eve. 
This was a high-handed sin. There was a special command and a special condition for fellowship with God. And they violated that. So, uh, let me illustrate it this way. Think, think about it like this. As, as parents, or maybe if you work with children, if they lie to you or, or take something that belongs to another person, of course they're going to get in trouble. Right? There's going to be some form of discipline or correction. It may just be verbal or whatever the situation requires. But now if you give them a special command, let's say you're a teacher, you have a classroom and there's some fish, right? And, uh, you know, you get every kid gets a turn to feed the fish at the end of the day and one kid decides, I haven't gotten enough turns and that fish looks hungry. So he goes over there and they know, the rules have been made explicit. Do not feed this fish more than, you know, whenever. Or once a day and we do it at the end of class. And this kid goes, lunchtime, he takes this fish food, pops the top, and he just dumps it all in there. Kills all the fish. <laughs> they, they eat till they die. They, at least they die happy. <laughs> all right? Uh, but but the, all the fish are dead. It, uh, wouldn't that be an exceptionally high-handed kind of sin? Right? The thing in and of itself is not the issue. It's not the fact that he fed and killed a couple fish that cost a couple dollars. But there were special instructions given about the fish and about the way that we go about caring for the fish. Right? And it's the same thing with this tree. Now, of course, there's an attachment to all of the commands. And what I mean by this is that it was God who said don't eat from the tree and God who's, who gave every other command that Adam and Eve had. So that when the child disregards your authority in the classroom, it's not the authority that in and of itself, but you they're disregarding. It's, it's a sin and it's an offense against you personally. Okay? Of course, uh, this is just by way of comparison. The sin that Adam, Adam and Eve committed was a very high-handed sin. We, we have to remember that Adam was in a, in a situation in the garden when we think, well, let me back up. When we think about the garden, remember, Adam wasn't like us. And this is what I mean. Adam was, was mutable. What I mean is he could, from the, 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 the way that he was created, he could either move into a state of blessedness that was greater than that which he already had. He could one day eat from the tree of life. And we don't know exactly uh, what his condition would have been or the condition of his posterity, his children, if he would have obeyed God and God would have said, okay, eat from the tree of life. We don't know what his condition would have been and the scriptures don't tell us. But we do know that it would have been better than the condition that he presently had. Because it would have been a reward given for obedience. Now, so he was a mutable creature. He could have, his situation could have gotten better, but it could have also gotten worse. Adam was able to sin and able to die. But he was also able to obey and able to live. You see? We are not in that position. 
We are born dead in trespasses and sins. And no matter how much, quote unquote, we think we can obey, we will never attain eternal life by obedience. We're not in the same position as Adam. We're fallen. We need a savior. Every one of us. But now, what was the nature of his sin? And what, what we have to do, of course, is look at the temptation. And I'm going to read a text to you, and I'll tell you what I think it is. It was the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Listen, uh, let me read that. Of course, that comes from 1 John 2, 15 through 17. I'm going to read that, but we're going to look at uh, Genesis 3.16. So John says, uh, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lusts of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. Okay? Now look at our text in Genesis chapter 3. I said verse 16, but it's not verse 16, because there, that's the judgment, so it's verse 6. It's verse 6, yeah. So, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. So, first, she saw that it was good for food. That's the lust of the flesh. Right? It, this, when I eat this thing, I think it was a pomegranate. When, when I eat this, I do. The reason why I think it was a pomegranate, and I've said this before, the reason I think it was a pomegranate is because in the, in, in the temple and in the um, tabernacle that Moses built, there was tapestry woven inside. And there were... Uh, there was a fruit woven inside the tapestry and engraved in gold on the temple. And that was pomegranates. So, anyway. That's not a big deal, okay? I could be wrong about the pomegranates. And it wouldn't affect anything that I'm about to say. Lust of the flesh, right? It was good to eat. Lust of the eyes. It was pleasant to the eyes. She, she, it, it was enjoyable. It was a desirable thing to have. Lust of the eyes. And then the pride of life, it would make her wise. She would be considered wise. You see those three temptations there? And she fell, and so did Adam. So then, this man who was mutable, but was, he was sinless. But he was mutable. He chose death rather than life due to temptation, the temptation of the devil. And that first covenant that was made in the garden was broken. And when that covenant was broken, the sanctions of that covenant were unleashed, which was death entered the world through the sin of Adam. Not only death, but the fellowship that he had with God was broken. And then a higher state of fellowship could no longer be attained. 
There had to be another way made open. Remember, at the end of chapter 3, verse 24, we read this. So he drove out the man, and he placed a cherubim at the east of the, the Garden of Eden, and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The fellowship was broken. The communion between God and man would never be the same. But now the last Adam comes into the world. The Lord Jesus Christ. And look at Matthew. Matthew chapter 4. He's been baptized. Jesus has already been baptized by John the Baptist. He identifies himself with sinners because he is their representative as Adam was our representative in the garden. Now, Jesus is a representative of God's people. And he is baptized. And after he is baptized and he begins his ministry, God says these words at the last uh, verse of chapter 3, This is my beloved Son in whom, in whom I am well pleased. And then immediately the Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. And what do you think are the nature of his temptations? Lust of the flesh, the pride of life, and the lust of the eyes. It's out of order, but it's the same three temptations. Note them. Look at verse, uh, look, uh, beginning at verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he fasted, he was hungry, right? He fasted 40 days and 40 nights. Afterwards, he was hungry. And when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. Lust of the flesh. Right? Jesus was hungry. And the devil is, you know, why don't you make these stones? God is not providing for you. You need provision. Provide for yourself. What does Jesus say? It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And he rebuffs that temptation. What does he use? Scripture. He uses the very word of God to rebuff the devil. Then the devil says, the devil takes him into the holy city and set him on a pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He shall give His angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. This was the, a temptation of the pride of life. You are the Son of God. That's why you can do this. So then why don't, why don't you just go throw yourself off of this and prove to everybody Right? In essence, do something that will prove that you are the Son of God. The devil actually cites two psalms that speak of God's protection of the Messiah. He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against the stone. You are the Son of God. Show it. Remember in the Gospel of John, the, the, uh, we, we come across the same thing. Well, if you're the Son of God, why don't you do this, that, or the third? His brothers, remember when they, when they were going into to the city, they said, hey, come on, why don't you come with us? You know, you're going up to, the, to, uh, up to the feast. And Jesus says, no, I'm not going up to the feast now. It's not my time to be glorified. So Jesus says, it is written, you shall not tempt the Lord your 
God. And now third, what does he do? Scripture. He rebuffs Satan. Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these will be yours if you will fall down and worship me. That is the lust of the eyes, right? He showed him all of the kingdoms of the world. Look, feast your eyes on this world. And as it says in 2 Corinthians, the devil, because this age is dark and fallen, he is the God of this world, right? So uh, he's saying to Jesus, I'll give it all to you. Jesus says, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him alone shall you serve. And what does Jesus do? Where Adam fails, Jesus is victorious. And in those three great temptations, he defeats Satan. Romans chapter 5 verses 18 and 19 puts it like this. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. That's the position that every person is born into. Every person is born condemned because of the sin of Adam. If men were not born, this, this may seem like an aside, but here, this is a very important point. If men were not born condemned, if they were born morally neutral and in a right standing with God, it would be futile to do missions anywhere. Why go aggravate them and tell them about believing in Jesus when if they're not born sinners? Right? Just leave them alone and they'll die and go to heaven. But that's not the case. The reason why we go and we aggravate the nations is because they're born dead in trespasses and sins. Men are born in a fallen condition. Morally fallen condition. Through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. And it is in this covenant, in the new covenant, that Jesus offers that righteousness to men. It is the gift that he gives to be united to him That the punishment that you deserve, he bore it for you upon the cross. And the righteousness that you need to stand before God, he gives you his own. He credits it to your account. This is what the, the, this is what is one of the gifts of the new covenant. And the one that we focus upon when we take the supper. So brothers and sisters, as we meditate upon this, the, the great David, David's greater son and the last Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, this is a time of of rejoicing uh, because we are celebrating the merits that he won for us. So if you're a Christian, I invite you to come forward and take the supper. If you are a Christian and you are living in sin, in a pattern of sin, and there is no willingness on your part to repent of that sin now, to turn from it, to confess it to God now, And to turn from it, please do not take the supper. Uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians that you're drinking judgment upon yourself if you do that. If you are not a Christian at all, please don't take the supper because taking the supper doesn't make you a Christian. 
what taking the supper uh, will do if you are not a Christian is just you'll have a few more calories when you leave here. That's it. It doesn't do anything else. What you must do to be saved is believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. So I would invite you then, in light of those things, to please come forward, first row, second row, and all the way around. All right, let's uh, pray together and then we'll take the bread together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us your son. And Lord Jesus, we thank you for your obedience, an obedience that we could never have offered. And we thank you for the gracious gifts that you give us in the new covenant. We ask now, Lord, that you would please bless the taking of the bread And that you would use this as a means of strengthening our confidence in what you have purchased for us. Redemption. Amen. Please take the bread with me. All right. Please turn with me now to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And... As we're working through this chapter, we're actually into the verses now. We're, I think, four or five weeks in. We're on verse four. (laughs) And this morning, we're going to focus on his statement, love does not parade itself. If you remember last week when we were looking at this section, I noted all of the negatives in these following verses. And I'll read them again with some emphasis. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, beginning at verse 4. Love suffers long. It's, it's patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It's not puffed up. Does not behave rudely. 
does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity. You see all of those negatives there. And this morning we'll be looking at love is not puffed up. Older translations translate this, it's not extravagant. Or you can say love is not showy. And you know, that's a... That's more slang, but you get the idea, right? Love, if love was embodied, love would not show up to church looking like Frank Sinatra. He's not the flashy one. Who's the flashy guy? Liberace. That's what I meant. Love would not show up to church looking like Liberace. That's, That's the guy, yeah. Now, why does Paul say this? There, 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 first, of course, for our instruction. But we have to see that this was an issue at the church in Corinth, right? And using an example like Liberace, of course, is illustrative. It's meant to catch your attention. But I want to show you how it manifested itself in Corinth. This kind of uh, being, being puffed up. Look at uh, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, beginning at verse 29. So this was an actual problem, and of course the Spirit of God has preserved the Word so that we receive instruction from it, but it was a live issue that Paul was dealing with. And he says this, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning at verse 29. The reason why God chooses people like us to save is for this reason. That no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him you are in Christ. So there were those who were in the church of Corinth glorying among each other. Paul reminds them then in verse 30. But of him you are in Christ. But of God, because of God, you are united to Christ. It wasn't anything in yourself. There wasn't any virtue in anything that you ought to uh, desire praise for. That God said, wow, you know, he's, that, that, that guy is, you know, very handsome or very smart or very rich, so I'll choose him. Or this young lady is very attractive or this older woman is very bright or she was a great whatever. No. Who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That, as it is written... He who glories, let him glory in the Lord. That is what we should boast in. Not in ourselves, not in anything special about us, but we should always be a people who glory or who boast in the God of heaven. Look at chapter 3, verse 21. So, you could boast in yourself, your gifts, your talents, your abilities, right? Your, your wisdom, your riches, your honor, your strength, your spiritual gifts. Or you could boast in other people. Look at 321. Therefore, let no one boast in men. I know this person or that person or I got a friend over here or over there and, you know, this guy over here is, you know, constantly name dropping and, and boasting in men. And that's what was happening in Corinth. And Paul says, don't do that. Why? For all things are yours. 
whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all are yours. What does he mean by that? Well, the individual that you might be boasting in, let's say it's your pastor, you boast in your pastor, you have a great pastor, blah, 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 right? He was, he's not given, or a great church person, or some celebrity, maybe you know, you happen to know a celebrity pastor who has a podcast or whatever, and uh, you know, you're always boasting about the guy. What was he given for? He was given for your edification, not for your glorification, and that's generally how people use uh, people that they know of notoriety. And it can be in a community or, or wherever. And Paul says, no, all these things were given to you by God. And look at some of the things that he counts as given to us for our good. Paul, Apollos, Cephas, that's Peter. Or the world. Or life. Or death. All things present or all things to come. All are yours. All of these things belong to us. They have been given to us by God for the distinct purpose of building us up, of edifying us, of conforming us into the image of Christ, but not of glorifying us or to be used as means of glorifying ourselves. So they were doing this with men. And here particularly men in the church. Look at chapter 4 verse 7. For who makes you differ from another? Or what do you have that you did not receive? Now if you indeed received it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? I have, you know, I have the, I have the gift of teaching, and you don't. So, there, right? And because of that, I feel good about myself, and like I'm better than you. But you receive that gift from God. You have nothing to boast in. You have no strength, no power of your own. You're, you're not, if we're honest, we are not useful to God or to his people because of our own strength. We are only useful to God and to God's people because we have received gifts from God. Right? So the glory, where, does it, where should it show up? Back to God. Let him who glory, glory in this. That he knows the Lord. One more text. John, I mean, no, 1 Corinthians 5, 6. And here, this is a kind of a, uh, they were boasting in how forgiving they were. Because there was a man in the church who was committing sexual immorality, and more than likely what it appears to be is that he was sleeping with his father's wife, his stepmother. And they hadn't kicked the guy out of the church. They were like, you see how forgiving we are? You could do whatever you want here. <laughs> and Paul says, your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? This kind of boasting of being more merciful than God even, or more gracious than God, is really, it's foolish. It's vain. So, you had these issues going on in the church. And here's, here's a, a quote here by one author. He writes this. It is 
not possible to boast and love at the same time. The one action wants others to think highly of oneself. That's what boasting is all about. What I've done. What, what, what I have done either for individuals in the church or for the church as a whole or for God. And what, oh, the reason why I'm communicating that is so that you make much of me. Well, that's contrary to love. Whether deserved or not, the other cares for none of that, but only for the good love. Love only cares for the good of others as a whole. Love is not concerned with receiving applause or praise or congratulations or a plaque or anything like that. What love is concerned with is the good of other people. And if you receive no praise, no thanks, if the people are un, you know, if the people around you are ungrateful and uncharitable and you sacrifice and sacrifice and sacrifice yourself and you think I'm going to stop doing that because nobody appreciates me. <laughs> You, you, what you want is praise from men. Since what we do should be performed from a principle of love and to glorify God and not to be seen by men or to gain their esteem, we must remember that love does not seek to win admiration or applause but to honor God. That's what love seeks to do. So brothers and sisters, as, as we think about this text, 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 4, love does not parade itself. It is not extravagant. It does not, it's not showy. It's not liberace. Let's remember that in our service to God, we may not look you may never you, you may never be thanked but is that why you're doing it yeah so is that why but is that why you're doing it that's right well, that's not why we're doing it we're doing it to honor and to glorify god uh, so with this mindset let's pray and let's take the cup together lord christ uh, we uh, acknowledge lord that this is the mindset that you had you humbled yourself. You came into this world to be a servant, according to what Paul says in Philippians 2. You humbled yourself. And not for the praise and applause of men, but for their good and for your Father's glory. And you saved us by doing this. So we ask, Lord, that you would give us that same mindset that you had. Forgive us, Lord, when we seek applause and praise we thank you that uh, when you mature us and you enable us Lord to turn away from that sin and we ask that daily more and more we would be conformed into your image that we would be people who confess their pride and their showiness to you and who seek to do things out of love for your people and love for you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please take the cup with me. Rick Jones will come and pick those around, uh, pick those up when we get the offering and let's sing.
God be the glory great As we continue to worship the Lord uh, through giving, we're back at the book of Exodus. So if you would uh, turn with me, and we're focusing upon this point. We focused upon it last Sunday. I want to focus upon it again. Um, Offerings in the Bible... One of the things they teach us, we've been learning many things, but one of the things in particular, are, are y'all warm? I think I have a fan remote in here somewhere. Or is it in my pocket? Where? Oh, here it is. When I find the person who keeps sticking their little hands back there, I'm going to break their fingers 
and I'll break their finger. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay. Uh, so, um, what, what, we'll, what we'll see in particular this morning is that our sacrificial giving, our, our sacrifices, and of course in the Old Testament, this is a way that uh, the people gave to God and to the, to the work of God was by means of sacrifices. Now, they gave other ways, but this section that we're focusing on in Exodus, excuse me, in Exodus, uh, Exodus 13 and verse 5, highlights this truth. And that is that there is celebration in sacrifice. Our giving is part of us celebrating the good that God has done for us. So, for example, and we can we make this we can make this connection simply. If you think about, let's say your son or your daughter or someone you love, birthday's coming up, and there's a particular gift that they want, but either it's difficult to get or maybe it's relatively expensive, but you sacrifice to get it for them, and you give it to them. What are you doing? You are celebrating. In this example, of course, their birthday. And what did you do to celebrate with them and to bring them joy? You sacrificed. We do this, you know, presents, maybe a car, pay for your kid's college, help somebody buy a home. Right? You, you sacrifice for that end. So let's look at a few passages then in, um, in the book of Exodus. I'll read 13.5 first. And this is specifically speaking about the uh, Feast of Unleavened Bread. I'll read from verse 3. And Moses said to, to the people, Remember this day in which you went out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. For by strength of hand, the Lord brought you out of this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. On this day, you are going out in the month of Abib. And it shall be when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Hivites and the Jebusites and the Mosquito Bites and the... Which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, that you shall keep this service in this month. What is it? Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. And on the seventh day... There shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten seven days, and no unleavened bread shall be seen among you, nor shall leaven be seen among you in all your quarters. And you shall tell your son that day, saying, This is done because of what the Lord did for me when I came up from Egypt. It shall be as a sign to you on your hand, and a memorial between your eyes, that the Lord's law may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this ordinance, this regulation, this feast, in its season from year to year. Why? Because they are celebrating, and this was something that this is something that is amazing about the Jewish uh, life the life of the Jewish people, is that their calendar commemorated the great works of God. And Christians have done that for a very long time, but we've kind of lost it. Uh, and, and, and in the Christian church, really, it, it has just deformed to 
uh, just heartless worship the Christian calendar um, for the most part. But this was embedded in their calendar, these celebrations. And then the, the celebrations were even intended to invoke in the children questions like, why is it, Dad, why is it that you, you know, why is it that you go to church every Sunday and that you give and you sing and you take the Lord's Supper? Why do you do these things? And it's a great opportunity then to disciple and to say, well, God has been very gracious to me. He delivered me from bondage and from slavery to sin. And he set me free in Christ. Therefore, I do these things to celebrate and to remember his goodness to me. And that's one of the reasons why we give to the Lord. So brothers and sisters, in light of this passage, let's give to the Lord and celebrate his kindness to us. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the immeasurable gift that we have in Christ. And we ask, Lord, that you would please bless our giving this morning may be pleasing to you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. And uh, you can use the bathroom now, and we'll come back for the sermon.
right, let's pray. Almighty God, uh, we're grateful to you for this day, thankful to you for this place, and uh, please forgive us for our sins this week, Lord, as a people and uh, as an individual. Please forgive me, Lord, and uh, my brothers and sisters, and uh, we're grateful to you for your kindness and your mercy toward us. I pray that you would give Pastor Rick the strength to preach your word, use, uh, use him today to bring conviction on us, and that we may... Uh, hear the truths from your word and apply them to our lives and live in such a way that we would win people to you for your glory, for your honor and your praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. Please turn with me to the Gospel of John. And we are in John chapter 9. That's almost halfway. (laughs) Yeah, that's almost halfway. John chapter 9. And I will be reading verses 1 through 5. John chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. Now, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Amen. Now, this, of course, is uh, very closely related to John 8. Remember, Jesus was having this huge discourse with the Jews. And uh, where, where did it all start? Do you remember where it started? Look at John 8.12. John 8.12. In John 8.12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Jesus came into the world to reveal... What what is he talking about here, this light of life? He came into the world to reveal God to men. And as men come to know him, then they can walk in that light and in that purity. So that's the immediate context. And if you look at the last verse there in in chapter 8, verse 59... And so Jesus passed by. Some of your translations don't have that phrase there. You should get a new translation. And so he passed by. And now as he passed by, chapter 9, so these, these, these two scenes are connected. Right? This, this story is connected. This is not some, something else that John just plugs in here. Jesus leaves because now they're going to stone him. 
And what Jesus does is, he is going to illustrate his power to give spiritual sight to the spiritually blind by giving physical sight to a man who is physically blind. You don't believe my words. Okay, now here, here is a work. I'm going to do what I have been saying I can do spiritually. I'm going to do it physically. So that's the, the immediate context. That's what's going on there. But now, note in, in the Gospel of John, sort of this section, this is this really chapter 1 all the way through chapter 12 is the beginning section where he focuses on his ministry. John records Jesus' ministry to those who were not part of the 12. And note the words in John 12, 38. And this is just sort of giving you context of the whole book to fit chapter 9 in. So it's immediately related to the events, the woman caught in adultery, that, that scene in the temple, Jesus saying he's the light of the world, and then all of the interaction that followed. But now, if, if we consider it in light of the section of the book, look at chapter 12 and verse 38. 37, excuse me, 37. John 12, 12, 37. But although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him. You see, miracles, and even real, these were real miracles. These are not make pretend, you know, um, Benny Hinn, uh, who are the other people, Paula White, yeah, Bentley Hart. These are not those fake miracles. These were real bona fide miracles. Miracles. Everybody knew that this guy was blind. Everybody knew. And Jesus literally healed him. And although Jesus did all of these signs before them, they didn't believe. That the word of Isaiah might be fulfilled, which he spoke. Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe because Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes and lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. These things Isaiah said when he was, when, excuse me, when he saw his glory and spoke of him. So you see that uh, an overarching theme in the book of John, at least in this first section of John, is this, is that Jesus comes to give spiritual sight. And men are rejecting that light that Jesus gives. They are refusing to believe it. So immediately related to his discussion in chapter 8 as the section of the book as a whole. And of course, if we think of the entire book of John, why was it written? That you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. John 20, 30-31. So Jesus is doing this to show the works of God so that men might believe He was sent by God and have eternal life. And He's going to illustrate this by giving this man His sight. So, Back to John chapter 9, and we'll pick up at verse 1. Now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. Did the man see Jesus? He was blind. He couldn't see in him. 
<laughs> the man wasn't looking for Jesus. Jesus sees the man. He sees the man in his sinful condition. Now, of all the miracles that Jesus does, the one, the, one, the kind of miracle that is recorded the most is giving sight to the blind. And he gives sight to the blind in multiple instances. And people call out to Jesus. But here, this man did not call out to Jesus. Jesus sees the blind man. He comes to the blind man. And note what his disciples say. So, and this man had been blind from birth. Important note here. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? This was a common view among the Jews. And if you note, they, they, really they're, they're asking the same question, but of two people. The man himself, did the man do something so that he might be born blind? Or did his parents do something that he might be born blind? The disciples assumed, and most Jews during this time did, that, there was a, that his blindness, his disease, was directly related to either the sins of the man or the sins of his parents. And so this is why he was blind. It was because of sin. That's what they thought. And this was, again, a common belief among the Jews. And particularly, it, it was a, which is a strange reading, but as, as I was reading, I realized this text comes up a lot uh, in the Jewish rabbis. It's Ezekiel 18.20. And they just take that verse itself, Ezekiel 18.20, the person who sins is the one who will die. Right? So what they would extrapolate from that, what they would get out of that verse is that the, the, the reason these consequences, for the consequences that you're facing, ultimately, death, is because you have sinned in some way. And if you read the book of Job, that is exactly the mindset that Job's miserable comforters had. That the reason why you're living in this condition, and the reason why God, uh, these things have come upon you, Job, is because you must have sinned in some way. What was strange also is that the, the Jews, at least the rabbis, they reasoned that a baby could sin in the womb because of this text. But there's no evidence of this in Scripture. There's no, nothing really to back that up. Well, so there's no evidence of that. And that's what they meant by that the man sinned. Remember, because he was born blind. He, so he, did he do something in his parents, in the, in, excuse me, in the mother's womb? Some kind of sin. They would even say things like if a, a woman was pregnant and she went in to worship uh, an idol, or to pr- offer false worship, that the child was included in that false worship and therefore was culpable. And, of course, the Bible doesn't teach anything like that. This was just a bad interpretation and application of the Scriptures. But the second one, or the parents sinned, and the illness or disability is a punishment for the sins of the parent. 
Now, immediately when we when we when we uh, hear that, we think to ourselves, "No, that that can't be." But you have to remember, in this case, that's not the that's not the case. Listen to what Jesus says: Neither this man nor his parents sinned. That's not the issue here. But because it's not the issue here, it doesn't mean it's not the issue ever at all. So, a practical modern day example: if a mother. And you, of course, it's, usually, it's the mother in this particular case. If a mother had been uh, an alcoholic or a drug addict and she has a baby, what happens to the baby? Right? Because of the sins of the parent, the child is affected. And we have this illustrated for us vividly in Second Samuel chapter 12, verse 15. Um, I'll read that passage. Second Samuel chapter 12. This is the sin of David. And listen to the words. And the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and it became ill. David therefore pleaded with God for the child, and David fasted and went in, and all day and night was all day and night on the ground. So the elders of his house arose and went to him to raise him up from the ground, but he would not. Nor did he eat food with them. Then, on the seventh day, it came to pass that the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Indeed, while the child was alive, he spoke to him. We spoke to him, and he would not heed our voice. How can we tell him that the child is dead? He may do some harm. You come to a passage like this, and um, the the you know uh, these texts are in the Bible, and the best thing that we can do is place our hands over our mouths. These texts are revealing to us God's sovereign prerogative, and if we come to these passages and basically say either I, I just I, I don't agree with that. I don't agree with it. Well, then, what you're saying is, I don't agree with the Word of God, and I don't agree with how God chooses to deal with men. That's a problem with you, not with the Word of God. Now, on the other hand, we don't have hundreds and hundreds of instances of this happening in the Bible. We just don't. But this is an instance where it happened. Now, to, and this, is, this is emotional for people because either they have had children with diseases so immediately they think to themselves, is he saying that God... No, I'm just reading the Bible. But look at Job. And we'll look at a few places in Job because Job, since he's an adult take some of the emotionalism out of, out of this reading of the Bible. But look at Job. Job chapter 1, verse 8. Job chapter 1, verse 8. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? 
that there is none like him on the earth. A blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the works of his hand, and his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. Note the words of the devil. The devil says, touch him, cause something to happen to him. And God says, behold, all that he has is yours, is is in your power. Only do not lay hand on his person. So, why did evil befall Job? Because God decreed it. That's what this passage, that, that, is, um, uh, that is the way this passage reads. Look at, look at Job now 2, verse 3. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on earth, all, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? And he holds fast to his integrity, although you incited him, me, against him, to destroy him without cause. So Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin, yes, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, he is in your hand, but spare his life. And Satan goes out to do his will. What, what you, every circumstance that we face in this world was decreed and comes forth from God. That's what these passages teach. They, they, they don't teach something different. There's no uh, esoteric interpretation which uh, excludes God and God had nothing to do with it. Look at 21, 27. And there is no, well, I went to the book of Psalms. Uh, I was looking, there's no verse 27. 21, 27. This is Job. He's discoursing on the wicked. So he's, he's, he's talking about the wicked. And um, let, let me read from verse 22. Can anyone teach God knowledge since he judges those on high? One dies in his full strength being wholly at ease and secure. His pails are full of milk. And the marrow of his bone is moist. Another man dies in the bitterness of his soul. Never having eaten with pleasure, they lie down alike in the dust and the worms cover them. Look, I know your thoughts, 
and the schemes with which, with which you would wrong me. For you say, where is the house of the prince? And where is the tent, the tent, the dwelling place of the wicked? You have not asked those who travel the road. And do you not know their signs? For the wicked are reserved for the day of doom. They shall be brought out on the day of wrath. Who condemns his way to his face? And who repays him for what he has done? God. God is the one who does it. It's the Lord. So, uh, when you look at Job's example, and then throughout all of Scripture, of course, the, the, what, what's the, I've asked this question before, what's the, the wickedest thing man has ever done? Crucify the Savior. God ordained that. He ordained the crucifixion of His Son for the redemption of His people. Okay? Now, uh, so, so if you're sitting here today and um, you know someone who is sick or you are sick, it's not a coincidence and it's not apart from the God's sovereign dealing with you in this world. And that's what we have to remember. You see, the picture that we would like to have of God is basically this genie, this guy, this, this Santa Claus. We won't say it this way, but we want a Santa Claus in the sky who bends to our will. And we don't want to suffer any discomfort. We don't want anything hard to come into our life. And if anything difficult comes, it must not be from God. It's the devil, you know? I've got a horrible transmission demon and my transmission in my truck keeps going out. Amen. And what you do is you harden yourself to the God of Scripture if you refuse to believe His Word. I'm not saying that uh, you have to understand all of the depth and intricacy with which God deals with man. That's not what I'm asking you to do because I don't know it. I don't understand why God does what he does. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not, I'm not saying to you, I understand perfectly. But what I'm saying to you is that this word reveals it perfectly. And what our duty is, is to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. Now, Jesus, Jesus says this. We're back in John 9. Addressing this particular issue, Jesus says it wasn't this man. It wasn't uh, his parents. And, and we saw that uh, there are instances where the parents can sin, father or mother, and the child be affected. That is absolutely true. That's not this instance. And also what we've seen is that this is not something that is contrary to God's decreed will. This thing has come to pass for a purpose. The purpose here, the, the purpose for this particular man's blindness is so that Jesus could heal him and God's glory be revealed. Look at how Jesus words it. But that 
the works of God should be revealed in him. That is why this man was born blind. But the question, of course, that uh, we should, we should uh, rightfully ask is, how are the works of God going to be revealed? What is, well, God's going to heal him. Is that always how the works of God are revealed? No. Absolutely, positively not. That is not how the works of God are revealed. Note this. There are several places. um, I I would say this. uh, The works of God and the glory of God are closely related. So I think, and I'll, I'll show you some text in the Gospel of John, but Jesus could have said this. I must work the works of, uh, excuse me, but that the glory of God should be revealed in him. Why do I think he uh, could say that? Well, look at John 17, 4. There are other passages, but we'll just look at the one. Uh, John 17, 4. John 17, 4. I have glorified you on the earth. How? How have you glorified God, Jesus? I have finished the work which you have given me to do. So as Jesus accomplishes his work on earth, what is he doing? He's giving glory to the Father. God is going to be glorified in this miracle. And it's not because hundreds and hundreds of people are going to believe, but because one person is going to believe. And that's the blind man. He he believes in Jesus. He says, he says to Jesus, and I love this. In verse 35, Jesus says, Do you believe in the Son of God? And the man says, Who is he, Lord, that I might believe in him? Jesus says, You have both seen him, and it is he who is talking with you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. That is how God is glorified here. But you, you can ask the question, right? You, you can ask the question, and this is from the children's catechism. Is uh, Let's see if any of the kids in here remember this. How do you glorify God? By loving Him and keeping His commandments. That's right. By loving Him and keeping His commandments. And what does the man do? He loves Him. I believe but now, and keeping his commandments. But now, because when you come to texts like this, it's, it's, we are supposed to think this way. How about when the glory of God is not the healing of the person? How do you glorify God then? You love him and you do what he commands. It's the same answer. Do we have examples of this in our Bibles? Do we have uh, places where we can go to see this? I I think preeminently we have the Apostle Paul. So turn to 2 Corinthians. God is going to be glorified in this man receiving his sight. But for some of us, God will be glorified in us 
by our sufferings. And that's paradoxical to us, but I, I think what it has to do with is um, uh, one, not not really digging in, you know, not really digging into the Bible, and not being taught that this stuff is in the Bible, and that's the primary issue. Most Bible teachers will not give you these truths. You know why? Because they understand that most people won't come back. Because this is not the God that men want to worship. They want, to, they, they, they want a deity that they can conform to their own image. And that they can manipulate. But that is not the God of heaven and earth. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning at verse 7, listen to Paul. So he was talking about, in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, this theme of boasting and the people boasting that we discussed during the Lord's Supper is a big deal. And, and part of what was happening was there was these group of, of uh, teachers who would come and they had like certificates of teaching. You know, they had, all had seminary degrees. They had doctorates and postdoctoral dissertations and works and they'd bring them with us and show it to the people and the people were in awe. Of them, So Paul speaks of his, possibly, of his visitation to heaven in verses 1 through 6. But then he writes this, Unless I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, this view of heaven, a thorn in the flesh was given to me. So people say his eyes were... Who, we, but we don't know because he doesn't tell us explicitly. But he had some, phys, there was some physical weakness that Paul had. It was, it was something. We don't know what it was. Listen to how he calls it. A messenger of Satan to buffet me. Lest I, and look at how Paul Paul, I don't think we could do this as well as Paul does it. But Paul makes a connection. And maybe God, if you're suffering with some sickness, might assist you this way as he does Paul, but it may not happen as clear. But look at Paul makes a connection. Lest I be exalted above measure. God has humbled me so that I don't become prideful. This, uh, this is an unbelievably biblical view of the God of the Bible. You see, this doesn't need a lot of interpretation. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that, he, that it might depart from me. This was something that Paul continued to bring to God in prayer. God, this thing is it's, it's, it's physically an issue. Lord, take it away. And what does God answer? My grace is sufficient for you. You, you. you don't need this thorn in the flesh to be removed. You need my grace. 
That's what you need. And here he's not talking about saving grace. He's not talking about being converted. What he's saying is is grace in this sense, in the sense of the strength that is requisite to live a life where you love me and obey my commands. And God gives that. God gives that grace. For, this is why, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Man. Right? (laughs) Even if you're not physically sick, I know how weak I am as a man dealing with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, just to use those categories that we've been looking at this morning. And how apart from the grace of God, I would not have the strength. But God's strength is made perfect. It is seen to be perfect. By who? Who sees it to be perfect? God himself. God sees, well, God's people, excuse me, God's people see the strength of God being perfected in them as he works through all of their weaknesses and inabilities, even physical ones. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities. Why? That the power of Christ may rest upon me. So he sees his physical weakness and all of his inabilities and what does he do? He praises and gives glory to God for it. Why? Because he knows then that God will step in and with an extra measure of grace enable him to love God and keep his commandments. Therefore, I take pleasure in my infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecution, in distresses for Christ's sake. Not not just because he's a masochist, right? That's not Paul's deal. But he does it for the sake of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And this is exactly what, what Paul, the apostle, um, excuse me, what uh, I think what John, this picture that, that he's painting, is in the weakness of this man, the strength of Christ is going to be magnified when the man is able to see. And for him in particular, it's by healing him. But for others, it's not that. It's Christ's power to help you to persevere. Right? Uh, when you face that wave of death... It's the grace of God helping and strengthening you to get past it. When you're facing the, uh, the uh, a physically debilitating disease, you know, medications, surgeries, whatever it is, uh, God, remove this, and he doesn't. Then what do you do? That's right. And you rely upon him to strengthen you because that's what he says he does. He's going to, now the frame of mind has to be, I'm going to continue to pray that God would take this thing away. I'm not going to quit praying and asking. But as I wait, I anticipate that God will make his strength perfect 
in my weakness. That's what I wait for. And then the heart hopes and anticipates and waits and sees God make himself strong in our weaknesses. So, uh, brothers and sisters, as we consider this passage in John, let us remember this, that whether in healing us or in leaving us the way that he does, Christ is working the works of God for the glory of God and for our good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. And I ask, Lord, that uh, you would help us. The, these, are, these are hard and difficult truths, but truths nonetheless. So we ask you that you would please help us, Lord, to believe your word. Help us to lay aside our emotionalism. Help us to lay aside our defective views of, of God. Help us to turn from those and to look to you and to find strength in you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Now please stand and sing the doxology as we close.